You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, and welcome back to the show. I just got back from Florida. For the Florida Surf Film Festival, perhaps you heard about that over on um, The Grit, but it was awesome to connect with East Coast fans. Thank you all for coming out. It was also really rad to watch surf films in a theater. Great environment. It's kind of what surf film was designed for. The energy is palpable in a group of people and a group of like-minded people, no less, surf fanatics. Also, though, through interacting with people, I realized um, through a few conversations that not everyone is aware, somehow, not everyone is aware of the various shows that I'm producing. Um, As I've kind of delineated things onto their own feeds, I think things get lost for people who aren't listening on a weekly basis. So this is your reminder that you can find everything. I'm producing a lot of shows. You can find them all on surfsplendorpodcast.com. The shows are Spit with Scott Bass for Surf News, The Grit with Chaz Smith for Surf Gossip. Those are gross generalizations, but that is essentially the genre for each of those shows. And now Surfboard Shaper Donald Brink has his own show, Swell With My Soul. So those are the shows. Those are the titles you could search for in your iTunes app. But again, you can find them all on surfsplendorpodcast.com. And then if you enjoy this content and that content, um, you should know that it's all listener supported with an assist from sponsors like Spy and Need Essentials. If you're interested in being a sponsor, feel free to reach out. But to support the listeners who contribute to this show, I am raffling off a surfboard this month, an Alaya. So everyone who's made a financial contribution to the show in the month of June will be entered to win. I'm going to select that winner on July 1st. Leon from Morningwood Surfboards on Oahu will shape a custom-built Alaya from Polonia Wood for the winner. So the winner will only be responsible for the shipping cost of getting that board from Oahu to wherever they are located. And in previous episodes this month, Leon's been explaining a little bit about the history and the design characteristics of an Alaya. And just as a refresher, it's a finless wood plank with a round nose and a square tail, a hard edge along the rail, all the way around the rail. And then the flex dynamics are a key attribute to that board. The way that Leon builds them, that sharp edge around the rail serves as essentially a fin for the board to kind of hold on to the water. And then the flex allows you to catapult with a little bit of projection to get drive out of the board. So the lack of fins means that there's zero resistance. So the board absolutely flies. The speed is the biggest draw for these types of boards. And then learning to control it with that edge and allow it to release with the slide is where all of the work comes in. Uh, it's the speed, it's the slide. You know, you can get way out on the, just haul ass out onto the corner and do like a, kind of like a cutback, but it's like a slingshot into like a 360, so like a reverse 360 back into the bowl. First time I did, I actually did, I, did, I didn't stop turning, I didn't know how to do that, so I was like 720 back into the bowl, and then you realize, okay, at first you put your hand out and it stops your spin, 
Um, but it's it, in in some ways it's similar to snowboarding. It's the connection to the past. It's it's something. It's the challenge. So you kind of have to be hard headed and stubborn to get on it and surf it consistently. I go to Mexico every year and it's, you throw that throw that in my longboard bag and it's six seven pounds. It doesn't really count as an extra board because people don't even know what it is. Like ideally, I surf a lot first, and if I was gonna have a multi session day on a surf trip, I surf a lot first because you need every ounce of energy. You know, if you're surfed out, you're not gonna hop on a laya and start ripping. It's like you, you need every ounce of energy to catch those waves. And it also just it, it teaches you a lot of how to tap into the wave and where the speed is and what the current's doing, what the reef is like. You're underwater, it duck dives like a rock. So it's just a different perspective on everything. I don't know. You 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 have to change your expectations of how much you're, how many waves you're gonna catch out there. So every every wave becomes more precious and. It gives you a different perspective. I mean, I think overall every surf break would be benefit from everyone having to put some time in on that because it kind of builds compassion towards everybody else, you know. At Morningwood Surfboards on Instagram. Thank you, Leon, for offering to build that board. Surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate is where you can donate to win that board and actually have it custom built for you to your specs. Thank you for your support. Today's episode is with Dr. Aaron James. Aaron is a PhD from Harvard University and is professor and chair of philosophy at UC Irvine. He's a lifelong surfer and the author of the book, Assholes, A Theory, and just recently, another book, Surfing with Sartre, An Aquatic Inquiry into a Life of Meaning. This book offers a lot. One thing is that it gives a nice historical context for exactly how lucky we are, you and I are, to be born into this time in history, not simply because of the internet, podcasts, access to information, readily available food and water, but really kind of more in relation to what he talks about in this book is we're lucky to even have the luxury of leisure pursuits. So much of human history was centered simply around survival. So this conversation is completely unique from any that I've had on this show. Aaron talks not only about our good fortune, but the actual importance and value of centering one's life around the sublime and around the beautiful. He also talks about being burned by Andy Irons at Lowers. He talks about how climate change will affect all of our favorite surf spots. This conversation goes deep and wide, and I did my very best just to keep up with Aaron. So I hope that you enjoy. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor. Hope that you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Aaron James. I'll be back at the end to sign us off. Thanks. Takes his final breath. But first checks his news feed to see what he's about to miss. It occurs to him only late in the game. We leave as clueless as we came. Heavens to the shadows in the cave. We'll all be wrong someday. I've never chatted with a professional 
philosopher about surfing before. Right. Are, are there many of you? Are you one of a kind? Yeah, not that many actually. There's a few a few people in in the profession who have some connection with it. Who surf surf in various capacities. Actually, a little conference that's now been going uh, going on uh, a couple years in a row now. That's uh, that's pretty cool actually. Uh, yeah. What is the conference? Well, we just had it in Del Mar. The second one, the other, the first first year of it was in uh, Tofino, um, Vancouver Island. And um, yeah, so it's like philosophers giving philosophy papers or talks related with some connection with surfing, uh, hmm. and then um, otherwise hanging out and just going surfing together and stuff. Uh, and actually, uh, our keynote this time was Bill Finnegan, who wrote Barbarian Days. Yeah, won the Pulitzer Prize for that. He he was out, so that was fun. So he sur- surfed and he, you know, was involved and gave you know gave us a nice uh, talk and stuff. Yeah. Is he a philosopher? No, he's he's not. You know, he was just curious to kind of dip in yeah. to see. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I had him on the podcast when the book came out. Oh, okay, yeah, um, yeah. Interesting guy. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about our constitutional right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as it relates to surfing? Yeah, Let's start there. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, I have so, never heard this before. Yeah, right. So, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness—that's a saying in the Declaration of Independence, and it's a riff on the philosopher John Locke who had a British philosopher who had a big influence on the American founders. and But he wrote about natural rights to life, liberty, and property. So um, there's a question, why did they keep life and liberty but drop property and substitute the pursuit of happiness? Um, and so one theory about this is that it originates to from stories about surfing in the South Pacific, especially Tahiti, that came back from Captain Cook's uh, vessel when they first discovered it. So when Captain Kirk cook first went there actually a couple times after the crewmates had written stories about about the locals uh surfing and then finally on one trip one of the local uh crew members tried it in a boat like went out on a boat and surfed a wave and another guy writing about it said you know um i i don't know if i have the line exactly but it said i couldn't i couldn't help but conclude that this man felt the most supremest pleasure being driven along so so fast and smoothly by the sea um, and so there was, along with stories of surfing, there was, of course, stories of like sexual escapades with the local Tahitian women. So this paradise, right, uh, that that's beautiful. And, um, and, and but so uh, those stories got back to um, both England and France. And at the time, it, w- it, it brought up the idea, which was totally new in the, under the sun for, for uh, in the north anyway. And that was the idea that happiness was possible on Earth. Um, and then and the idea was, well, maybe you could organize uh, a, a society and if happiness is possible on earth in the south pacific how do we bring it to the northern hemisphere and um and in fact napoleon before he became you know napoleon bonaparte we know um he wrote about he wrote like a article about happiness um uh, trying to become kind of a rousseau type figure uh rousseau who'd written about democracy for the first time in modern thought um, but so any one theory is that this 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 thought, thinking about happiness and from tales from the South Pacific helped motivate the French Revolution um, and to implement the Rousseau's social contract. And so um, it didn't go so well <laughs> for a long time with the, the bloodbath that ensued. Uh, but that was the animating idea. And in fact, in the end, it worked out well. And, and that also inspired the American Revolution. Um, well, certain, they did draw from Rousseau and Locke's thought. In the American Revolution, and looked to France as an example of both how to do things and how not to do things. But one idea is that the the preoccupation with happiness comes directly from those stories, and so it could be that the American founders in the culture 
that that really goes back to surfing in the first. So it's not just that surfing came to, which is true, came to, you know, Cal, well, came California and New Jersey and like uh, Duke Kamanamuku came and did some exhibitions. I think that was in the 30s or around there. Um, so that was when it was sort of first introduced in modern times. But uh, in a, in a, there's a deeper story potentially uh, about how uh, it inspired the sort of original concern for, hap- for the pursuit of happiness uh, in American life. Now, I don't know if we've, like, as a country, lived up to it that well. Sure. It's a whole different conversation. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what that guy was writing. Uh, the, the, like, what type the of original, board yeah. he was riding? Uh, I, I think it was a boat, but I don't know what the locals... Like a canoe or yeah, something? Yeah, something like that. But I don't know what the locals were riding. It might have been... I'm not sure if it was a canoe or a stand-up type thing. Yeah. You know, um, um, yeah, and I don't know if that predates what's known to have happened in Peru or, or whatever, sure. or if it was connected. I don't know the history well enough there, but yeah. Was happiness such a um, foreign concept? Yeah, it absolutely was, right? I mean, people... it. It's it's a to- it's a new thing under the sun in the same way that liberties valuing liberty um, it was a new it's it's a creature of modern political thought it was an innovation um, um, you know in earlier times pre modern times you know people had their station and uh, you yeah. didn't worry about happiness and uh, um, well certainly in medieval thought but back in ancient Greece there was more of a concern for for happiness but it meant something different it it it, it meant um, sort of doing well as a person being virtuous being successful uh, but they didn't think that you sort of are, are have a pursuit of your personal happiness through liberty that's just distinctively modern uh, thought yeah it's interesting I, I guess maybe I touched on it when I was in college and I took one or two philosophy classes or something like that but I hadn't thought about it really uh, about the context that we live within yeah. until I read the book and the book did kind of illuminate that for me and put it into oh, context yeah. and was like oh the era of leisure pursuits and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. that is all new and we are we should be hugely grateful yeah, to yeah, live right. in the time that we live in no in fact i think and the start of it really um um it, it the leisure revolution as i call it within capitalism happened in the late 1930s with the introduction of the 40-hour work week right. it's something we take for granted or surfers of course think 40 hours my god you know we're banking hours that's like the peak surfing hours the whole week you know so like we grow up like trying to get out get around the 40-hour work week but itself, it was a hugely important innovation because the idea was at the time, you know, before employers would ask people to just work, you know, sleep a little and then work the rest of their time. Yeah. Um, and then there were some traditions, you know, have the Sabbath or you could protect. There was like one protected day in some places. But uh, the idea, the argument was made, no, look, it should be eight hours for sleep, eight hours for work and eight hours for whatever else you want to do. Right. Just even this leisure, not just for rest to be more productive, but to live, you know, yeah. Um and so the 40-hour work week got going, um, and um, uh, and then in the post-war, after World War II, with the American economy had done really well after the war, it had a, a you know this new big middle class, low income inequality, um, and then now this work week that was sort of so people were wealthier than ever and had more, and now had a sort of protected free time. Sure. And that's what that's when surfing like really got going, you know, the start of it as sort of a cultural force, right? Sure. Uh, um, people had time and they had the resources, you know, cars and surfboards to catch on and start innovating surfboard design. Um, uh, you know, so, and you know, like in the Bruce Brown films, you know, are partly celebrating, you know, with 1966, The Endless Summer, and also his On Any Sunday, you know, the motorcycle film uh, is celebrating that new leisure culture. But that's, like unprecedented in the history of the world, right? Uh, and it's now something we really take for granted, but but it's relatively new. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, we will get into the book and how surfing 
you know, as a uh, leisure activity or recreational activity relates to all of that. Uh, but before we do, I, the book kind of touches on something that I've always felt and I've never really um, been able to articulate it, but I think about it all the time and I probably won't be able to articulate it very well here either. Um, and to put it cheesy, it's that surfing is kind of a metaphor for life, you know, and to put it less cheesy, it's um, like a lot of the lessons you learn in surfing basically instill kind of values, character and principles that will serve you well through either work, family relationships, and just getting through life. Um, the book kind of constantly touches on those things. And so I really enjoyed reading it for that reason. It was kind of like, oh, it illuminates all these things that I've kind of been aware of innately and haven't been able to articulate. And I don't really know that anybody's really fully articulated it well. I think the worst versions are it is when Hollywood has tried to make a movie about it. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, just like, right, yeah. oh, surfing's like this great thing. And yeah. They never do it successfully, but I think the book did it successfully um, in a lot of ways. Uh, that's great to hear. Yeah, I mean, for me, actually, I mean, growing up, um, you know, as a surfer, a lifelong surfer, but then also now uh, like a, a philosopher, a professional philosopher studying a lot. You know, I always had a vague sense just of that, like that, yeah. that being a surfer really like helped in life. And like, uh, yeah. and even like friends in philosophy would say like, oh, you're so lucky to have that, you know, like because it, it made a difference sort of to how I would work or, you know, uh, um but I never was, I was never very beyond sort of the Hollywood or the cliches kind of thing myself, you know, for a really long time. It wasn't, it was really when I sort of thought, no, I should really figure out what surfing and philosophy have to do to do with each other. And then I, I started thinking through the connections more explicitly sort of, and it was an odd thing because then in explaining, you know, trying to nail the essence of surfing and then thinking about other examples of it, you know, I sort of learned all of this stuff about myself and my life that I couldn't have never said before, before I really thought about it. So it wasn't just that I was learning about surfing. I felt like it was like, I was learning about my whole life story and things that like had clearly been really important to me my whole life that are important to surfers that if somebody you'd asked me before, I just wouldn't able, wouldn't have been able to say it. So, uh, it's a weird way that philosophy led to this kind of, not just intellectual discovery, but self-understanding. And was that, um, prior to writing the book and what was the impetus for the book specifically? Yeah. Well, I, 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 I guess I, I'd, I'd written this other book, assholes, a theory that did well. And then, uh, there was kind of what's next, you know, sort of thing. And then I thought, well, the thing I really want to do is that I figure out what serving philosophy have to do with each other. I had a sense that I didn't, didn't really know. I'd off, I mean, often made various connections, Yeah. you know, but, uh, but thinking though, really like, uh, work through in a serious way, you know, how the two relate to each other. So I thought that was just like a cool project and it'd be new. And then, um, um, uh, you know, and now I could do it. Maybe if I just started writing that book that, you know, like a major commercial press, maybe they wouldn't have been interested but on the heels of another successful book, you yeah. know, then they think, okay, yeah, this will fly, you know, kind of thing. Um, so I got into it and then it was just through that gradual process of figuring things out, of piecing it together for myself that I, you know, for example, I realized that a lot of my life was organized around um, not just skillful activity, but um, but the sublime and the beautiful. Um, those are just like th since you know I was a kid, that's been sort of the, a central preoccupation and like in a really devoted way. Those couple things and attunement, increasing attunement through skillful activity, not just like you know in getting good at, at a trick or a, or a sport, but but in a way that's inspired and motivated by the beauty of waves and the beauty of surfing and the sublimity of the ocean. Um, and now I can say a lot of stuff philosophically about those concepts or even put those words on it. But beforehand, you know, I wouldn't have, 
I wouldn't have been able to really nail down um, um, uh, nail it down in those terms. A part of me, while reading it, was thinking like, "Man, you're taking surfing way too seriously." You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like just just have fun. It's all good. You don't right, have to right, figure right. out what the meaning is. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you know, and then part of me also, I, I mean, you'd have to be. It sounds cliche to say things like, "Oh, surfers have all the answers," and like, "What is the meaning?" Mm. But or to even assume that it's an enlightened path, I feel is also somewhat kind of I don't know, uh, arrogant almost, but. You'd have to be ignorant to not acknowledge that something that you do on a daily basis definitely has implication for your worldview, certainly, and even how you treat other people, how other people interact with you, yeah. all of it. It does. So it's worth analyzing, you know? Yeah, yeah right. Uh, um, and I do think that surfing, I don't know, you didn't, I mean, you kind of touched on it. You never said it explicitly, but like surfing is unique, you know, it's different than even other in skateboarding or snowboarding or even things that the only thing that I've ever heard people talk about that even comes similar that is even similar to the way people talk about surfing is rock climbing. Right. You know? Uh, but even that I don't feel is that's a stagnant surface and you can right. kind of go there and do it repeatedly. So surfing is unique. Yeah. No, I, I mean a big, uh, th- there's certain ways of thinking about it that make it not so special and you know, not, really interesting to pursue. Like if you think it's just another source of pleasure or surfing is just about having fun. I mean, there's a lot of ways to have fun. You can play Parcheesi, you can, you know, black, you know, uh, pick up sticks, you know, you can have fun playing little games or whatever, for example. Um, and now games are actually philosophically interesting in themselves, but not necessarily any particular, not Parcheesi per se, right? right, right. Like, you know, <laughs> what's the meaning of life? Well, let's think really hard about Parcheesi. Uh, so that, neck wouldn't fly. So, but is surfing like that or not? It's an open question. Um, when I think, when it always, when people say, "Oh, surfing's fun," I think that's not really what we love about it exactly. I'm, yes, it's very fun, but it's not just another way of having fun. It's not just another way of having enjoyment, or it's a really special kind of enjoyment. Um, and then once you start thinking about why, like what it's a, what the enjoyment is about, uh, and then you start getting well, it's not just the same thing as any ocean sport, or it's not even just right. You know, yeah. and you get to these differences, and that's I sort of operated with you know uh, the sort of pretext that um well a kind of a hubris you might as you were suggesting that there is this distinctive meaning but that was to me was like um you know it was kind of a conjecture like can is this really a defensible position and then i think it is in the end right (laughs) i think so too yeah 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 um and you know it's if you're a surfer already you know it's it's easy to be convinced but can you really articulate in a way so that other people you know who don't surf can think oh well yeah um, maybe it's not the only good thing in life, but I can see how there's really something special special about it. And I think people have a sense of that anyway. Just I think they do. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but this just really articulates it in a way that, um, you know, just watching Jeff Spicoli or whatever wouldn't, or or even comments comments you know made by professional surfers or famous surfers, you know, which are useful. I mean, some people do sort of listen to Laird Hamilton, like the sage. Let's see what the the godlike man. You know, has to say like, you know, and then you know he says maybe some fine things, but nothing that um, um, necessarily uh, would you know make people feel like oh I totally get surfing now you know um, yeah so yeah that that makes sense because I didn't know what that was either uh, for for a long time until I really worked at it yeah um, getting into the book specifically are we pronouncing it Sartre or Sartre yeah both both are fine Sartre yeah. okay who is John Paul Sartre Sartre yeah Sartre. Um, he's so he's the great 
um, one of the great existentialists of the 20th century, both a literary figure who won the Nobel Prize in, in literature, but then also a philosopher, um, uh, you know, Fran from France. Um, um, fan he, uh, let's see what else to say about him. You know, well, he was he was a sort of dark figure in the sense that he, he captured a lot of the anxieties, you know, of the time. He was a prisoner of war in World War II. He wrote part of his great masterwork be, being in nothingness while he was in a, a, a camp, prison camp. And, at, and uh, part of that book actually has these long discussions of snow skiing and how it exemplifies freedom. And it's a funny thought to think of him in a concentration camp banging out sure. pages about uh, about skiing, you know, and freedom. <laughs> so, uh but he was, you know, there's some, a lot of, some aspects of his views of his existentialism have kind of some surfy aspects to it. Uh, and, but then his way of doing philosophy is definitely, well, phenomenology as it's called, is just sort of, just look at th what things are like and then try to just capture them and extract their philosophical meaning just from, from what it's like or, or like a good characterization of it um, without sort of operating with an abstract theory and then just applying it uh, to the phenomena. And so then that works really well. Um, if you want to figure out surfing, you know, sort of following Sartre's lead, he he just he, in the way that he does a phenomenology of ski, skiing, um, you know, uh, try to do try to do surfing as well. Well, not to put too fine a point on it, um, or to reveal the book to listeners who haven't read it, but your claim is essentially that surfers are on the right side of history. Am I right? Yes. In that we're kind of um, in in regard to kind of outlook time management, handling finite resource, that sort of thing. That is the... Yeah, right. I mean, so I think that um, uh, for a bunch of reasons, um, capitalism is likely to... Well, it's both maybe necessary and probably desirable for us to, to, to work less, to have a shorter, shorter work week. Um, and then, you know, for people who are very attached to the Protestant work ethic, that like is a stressful proposition right <laughs> like, yeah you know no meaning is all i have that's what that's my sense of my identity my sense of status and skill and um uh in life and you know yeah sure a little bit of rest you know but just to recharge the batteries for work or whatever uh surfers on the other hand are like oh yeah shorter work week sure you know as long as as long as the waves aren't gonna get more crowded <laughs> you know, right. you know, kind of thing. uh so happy to work less or and very much keyed in with the idea that um you know, money, uh, getting rich, capitalism is supposed to make us rich. What is what? But it's not just to have money. It's not just to be wealthy. It's not just to have like ever bigger houses, ever nicer cars. It's to it's to have to do other things like go to go surfing, to have be in beautiful places, spend time with family and friends, surfing great days at the beach. So, like that's the whole meaning of life is, uh, uh, in, obtains in a good enough sense, like on those days, on the on the good waves. Right. That's the whole point of it. Right. Um, and um so and you know so the idea of capitalism right is poverty is terrible and you're not gonna you don't do a lot of surfing you know if you're poor um and you know i go to nias for a month every year and then some of the surfers paddle out like on really yellowed boards and they're like guys who work in the rice fields uh, you know to get enough rice just for the they get paid in rice work all day and they might uh, squeak out for the evening session but like that's not you know <laughs> they're poor they're they're not rich enough to surf uh, regularly even though they're right in front of like a beautiful wave so there's nothing great about that so capitalism is a great thing because it has this magical capacity to raise our standards of living to eliminate poverty uh, so in that sense surfers sh should welcome it right um, um, you know, it's what creates the possibility of meaningful leisure of, of working less, yeah. um, the efficiencies increasing. But 
but then there's another view about capitalism, which acts as though, you know, it's just re getting richer for its own sake is the point, right? Just having ever more, you know, a kind of race. And that's kind of insane. Although our culture doesn't is it really lose track, loses track of, of that idea. Um, it loses track of the idea that there's actually even an, as economists call it an opportunity cost or something you give up by working more, right? Unless it's time with the family, they'll say, oh yeah, we're that, you know, yeah, she maybe you could take some time off work to be with the family. But other than that, um, you know, the idea is that, you know, you're supposed to sort of get as rich as possible or get as much status as you can and whatever achievements, you know, within your profession or, you know, um, so the sort of cultural values are always oriented around sort of having ever more um, and not, um, uh, the intrinsic meaning that comes with the things that you do uh, with free time. So uh, surfers and some already get that there's something really wrong <laughs> with, the, with the whole, uh, you know, from go, you're, you know, you're trying to figure out how to sort of work around, you know, how to have enough money to be able, basically to be able to surf a lot and be a flexible schedule. So you can on it when the waves are yeah. good, travel a little bit. Um, so you're already kind of outside of the conventional expectations. Now, like that might've been seen as a kind of a hippie attitude or, you know, f at a certain you know, period. Uh, um, but um, I think it's sort of for various reasons, it's inevitably, or at least, and it would be a good thing to have it be the future of capitalism. I mean, for one thing, as as automation, as, ro as uh, artificial intelligence, especially deep learning, which is really incredible, does more and more to um, um, automate jobs, um, there's a there's a real chance that it can start to outpace that 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 destroys jobs for people. People are often retrained for new work, the opportunities for work are created, but there's a, there's a real risk that the pace of automations goes faster than, than people can be retrained in new things. So in that case, there may not be as many opportunities for work, in which case we can think that's, we can fight that, right? <laughs> or we can think, no, okay, let's just work less and then let's standardize it, you know, have, have a shorter work week, professionalized part-time work, pay a basic income, which might be anyway, necessary anyway. Um, uh, and you know, so, and surfers are sort of already on board with doing this. Oh yeah. Twist my arm. Okay. Yeah, sure. fine. So they're on the vanguard of this, of a new, uh, more leisurely kind of capitalism. And then also for climate change reasons, um, which is, you know, a special importance to surfers given that rising sea levels threaten to destroy the world's surf spots, you know, relatively well, not, not right away, but you know, in the, yeah. uh, over a century or so, but you know, might not be too long before low tide spots are gone. Desert point is gone. For example, um, uh, you know, well, the work that we do work is one of the big sources of our emissions. Sure. And so, and one thing you can, we can do in, to reduce our overall emissions is just work less, uh, um, after the 2008 financial crisis, when unemployment was high emissions dropped a lot and then came back as people were working more. So. Um, now, unemployment is a bad thing, is a shock, right? Uh, but if you can do a more orderly kind of reduction of work, professionalize part-time work, reduce the work week, pay basic income, things like that, um, and have a culture that's that puts more value on things like surfing or spending time with family or kids, you know, uh, or friends at the beach and or the lake or you know games and other sports, you know, the, uh, uh, you know that's already in the culture to some degree. But if it could be really uh, have a culture more oriented around that as a source of meaning in life. You know, then there's a sort of much smoother transition through a lot of big sort of world historical changes, developments in technology, climate change that are like just coming down the pike that we're not even half prepared for at the moment. Right. Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, the surfer shows the way, I think, to a kind of more graceful transition through those kinds of problems. 
When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. Free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Um, there's a lot in there that I want to unpack cool. that I've got in my notes. Um, but back to the beginning, one of the things you were saying, like I identify as a surfer, have for pretty much since I was 12 probably, and I actively surf pretty much that whole time. Even I forget um, some of the things that you've said, and I get caught up in that capitalist thing that you're talking about, where it's just about gaining, you know, and acquiring. And, um, it's hard, man. I mean, you, when you say it, it makes perfect sense in theory. It's hard in practice. Yeah. It's hard to abandon your capitalist pursuits in practice and just reset on a daily basis. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, there's on the coast it is anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, but it's an interesting question of, of, why we work as much as we do. I mean, for a lot of people like who haven't had a pay raise for a long time, you know, cause wages have been stagnant for lower skilled workers for a long time. You know, they're working longer just to have, you know, um, a new car or whatever, or pay the bills, yeah. you know, so you can understand there, but, um, but for a lot of people they are just working harder, you know, the idea to get a little bit richer, um, uh, you know, we're, we're spending more and more time in the, on average working just to ha- eke out, have a little bit or, and taking on more debt to have nicer stuff. So, I mean, what's behind that? It's actually a kind of important question, interesting question. Uh, but one answer is that it goes to a deep uh, part of our need for status. So there's kind of our sense of like whether we measure up, you know, um, might be how we think we compare with the Joneses, whether we're doing better than or <laughs> we're kicking, kicking ass relative to the, the average or yeah. we're behind. And that sort of status is what you, we might think uh, we get from making more money or having signs of wealth. Um, and then, you know, and that's a kind of an evolving standard because, you know, if you if you get some of those signs, but then take it easy and then sort of the, the sort of average you know, level of wealth or attainment surpasses, you might then feel behind. So but this is this. There's no end to this. Right. There's no, no end to the status game. No, um, it's just ever more. It'll it sucks up more of your time, more of what's important in life um, just for that goal. And 
it's self-defeating in its own way as well because, I mean, you might feel initially happy and pleased with yourself from a new status attainment, but psychologically, we normalize really quickly to those. And we totally. basically, this is a well-established fact of psychology. Um, you know, we have this boost of kind of, of, of happiness when you have a new attainment, and then you quickly revert back to the previous level of happiness you had before the attainment. Right. right. So, I mean, they call this a hedonic treadmill because mm -hmm. it's like running on a treadmill going for a little bit more pleasure when in fact you're not ever getting any any happier over the longer run right um and for a lot of people maybe they don't know anything else or whatever so of course yeah and they they, they find something interesting in the work and um and you know they get talented and there's intrinsic joy from that skillful activity so that's sort of maybe something like they're surfing but for surfers it's like you know what really makes you happy you know right like surfing really good waves you know like the meaning of life is right there like that day you like everything waves yeah even bad waves right um just going uh, that's why yeah. I'm now it's like or certainly with this winter in southern california yeah, right. it's like i don't even need to catch waves just paddling out getting yeah. in the cold water getting a little bit of sun that's almost enough yeah you know? right I, I mean getting waves is better yeah but. yeah it's definitely i mean that's that's another nice thing for me about writing the book that is that uh and thinking more about the simple beauty and sublimity of of waves and riding them um i was just i could start cruising down the line on a small little wave and then just and just really enjoy it yeah intrinsically without feeling like you gotta get uh, it's inadequate i gotta get you know yeah. i still do a certain amount of tube chasing etc but you know uh, but it's not like um you know my life as a surfer is incomplete if i haven't done that you know do that you know i mean right. so less about the chase and more about um something that's just about the life of the surfer when you think about it is like a process of ebb and flow right um like there's swell and then you surf and then you wait in between waves and you do other things and you know there's the cycle of the ocean and the swell storms generating and um, and it's just like that's that's beautiful in its own way, and surfers just intrinsically understand that because it's yeah. what we never really know. Yeah, it actually segues perfectly into another kind of constant theme in the book, and maybe even the most used word in the book is flow. You know, and trying to be in flow in regard to life, work. Um, surfers are kind of predisposed to it for the reasons that you just said. They're kind of trying to always be in that. I've I've personally found and and then that relates to attunement, which is something that you've been talking about too. I've personally found my best surfing experiences and just my happiest experience in life is when I'm in that moment, when you're actually in the moment. You know, you're not regretting something in the past, you're not anxious about something in the future, you're just kind of there in the moment. And specifically in surfing, it's about me trying to kind of not impose my will on the wave. Right. If I paddle out, if I get a wave and I'm trying to think of the way I surfed the last wave and improve upon that, I've already lost the plot. You know, I just right. kind of got to get up, let muscle memory take over. And that's when I kind of have my best performances. Um, so how do you define flow? Yeah. Let's so start there. Yeah. So I started thinking, I thought, well, look, I mean, flow is actually... Uh, a studied topic in psychology that you know uh the flow state um there's a lot of work on that cognitive science and psychology work but i thought so i thought wait a minute like uh, if anyone knows about flow it's surfers <laughs> like it's not just a metaphor like surfers literally get carried along with a changing natural phenomenon they're they're carried along by the natural propulsive forces precisely by being in the flow of that it's also a flow right <laughs> so mm -hmm. being in the flow of a flow um and then so what is that um i think the essence of it is 
um, adaptive, be adaptively attuned to the wave, um, to each moment of the wave as it as it changes, right? Uh, and where you where you do that for its own sake, um, and so that's sort of the minimal basic idea of flow. Um, but you can sort of you can if you're a good enough surfer, you can go out and do that even if you're not in the peak state of performance, sure. right? Or uh, you're not in the zone, you know, the the flow state in that sense. Um, but you're already in the, in the way you just described really nicely in this this relationship of adaptive attunement that's that draws you into the present that involves um not forcing things not imposing your will i mean you can't you don't know well enough what a wave's going to do you can't impose your will on it you have to watch and wait and see what's going to do and just react moment by moment and then this beautiful thing happens when you've sort of you've done uh, each right you've done the right thing in each moment you know the flowing pattern emerges you linked all the sections together the the turns all connected you never caught a rail you know like maybe there was a surprise like tail slide or floater or whatever you know or a, a zing on a turn you know and then the whole thing just connects and then that's those are some of the most stoked moments even if you're not surfing your absolute best you just feel like whoa you know uh there's this um the stoke that the feeling of stoke there is as I think of it as a fortunate coalescence between skill and circumstances. Like, so circumstances and your skillful activity, neither of which on their own could make for this, this flowing, you know, uh, pattern line through the wave. Um, but then it, but then it happened. And then mm -hmm. at the end of the wave, you have this sense of sort of delight and fortune because you're like, wow, everything came together. I was there for that. Like, this is, this is why this is a good enough reason to be alive right here. You know? Yeah. Uh, so that's the, that's the sort of basic, um, idea thing that surfers really know about flow and it's already a source of joy and happiness but then if you turn to the psychology literature this really surprised me when i look back at it. this guy who wrote the sort of uh, most famous book about this called flow his name is it's a it's a word that starts with c that c is unpronounceable but you say okay. it chicks and mihai um so the, he wrote a book but he characterized flow or the flow state as a state of optimal experience as he calls it so now, if you're a philosopher, you look at that and you're like, optimal experience. So it's just an experiential state. And he thinks it's like it's just a state of mind. It's not a relation to your environment. It's just a state of mind. And it gets induced, he thinks, by controlling your, your mind, by self-discipline. And it turns out this is really just stoic thought from late antiquity. It's really similar to their idea. They thought if you sort of organize... If you regulate your thoughts and adapt them to your circumstances, then you can induce happiness, tranquility, regardless of what happens to you. So it, um, it's not exactly about adapting your circumstances and getting to a flowing relation with your environment. Um, it's more just managing your, your, your own mind so that you keep a state of equanimity, whatever happens. So um, if you, you could be in a concentration camp, for example, and then you can still have a state of tranquility because you're just accepting your circumstances throughout your eye, adapting your desires to your circumstances like that. And in fact, Csikszentmihalyi, he, he was influenced by this book uh, by uh, Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. And that was inspired by, he was inspired by concentration camp survivors from, from uh, Nazi Germany. And he, he basically revived Stoic thought about, because they use Stoic techniques sort of, of adaptation, um, just basically to cope with awful circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. So it does work for that purpose, but it's... <laughs> It's not the same thing as what the surfer knows, you know, which is about being attuned to to your environment, right? Um, um, and it's about being efficacious. It's not just so. In other words, you you can't just be in the surfer's flow if you're on an experience machine, a virtual yeah. experience machine doing virtual surfing. There, I mean, you, you might it might be like playing a video game, surfing video game, but you're not really surfing in the sense of you're not really being adaptively attuned 
and you're not efficacious in the sense of actually successfully going down the line, you know, uh, finding the harmonious adaptation between skill and circumstance. I mean, that's not all happening. That's the fact that that happens is what's so like wonderful and joyous about surfing. What we're like grateful for, or feel fortunate about, why we feel grateful to be alive. Like a surfing video game could be really fun, and like I would try it if it's convincing. But it, you know, it's it's not just having an optimal state of experience isn't the same thing. So surfing really brings out, I think, why flow isn't really isn't just an experiential state. I mean, that could be part. It's certainly part of it and part of an enjoyment, yeah. but not the whole thing. Yeah, and it wouldn't. It would certainly be like the emotional component of it, but it wouldn't have the economical benefit that you lay out right. in the book and the even the physical benefit. You yeah. know, all sorts of other things. Um, the WSL refers to speed, power, and flow as a yeah. part of their judging criteria. Right. They don't have style in the criteria. Oh, right, right. But I feel like speed, power, and flow is kind of how they word it. Right, um, right. And it's interesting to hear you talk and then think about, like, I've seen guys, certainly here in Southern California, you see guys waste a wave, essentially, on a high-performance shortboard, yeah. take off pump down the line just looking for an air section or yeah, maybe yeah. at worst do a chop hop or yeah, something right, like right, that right. and it's the opposite of flow that's not flow. Yeah, and it's like right. well that was ugly why was it ugly yeah. you know i'm not sure why it was ugly and as you think about it it's yeah. the antithesis right right of flow yeah know? even in the surfing judging criteria they're not flow isn't just an experiential state it's it's a property of the relation between the surfer and the opportunities that were afforded by the wave and the sense to which they were attuned you know Correct. such spontaneous um, kind of speed and power are emerging from you know the relationship it's uh, kind of a transference of energy i think yeah right you know yeah. at the right moments when it's yeah. offering it um, i mean you know it when you see it right yeah um, you do well that was yeah. going to be my question to you yeah. actually is as a surfer who do you think best represents the state of a t being attuned yeah i guess i guess well famously tom curran of course he was known you know um for his attunement um but you know nowadays you you have to mention Slater uh, to um, um, and maybe Parco I guess partly style yeah. influences it to some degree you know his great style but I think that helps him really be a flowing surfer as well uh, you know a really attuned uh, surfer um, well yeah the reason why I ask yeah. is um, I agree. Tom Curran is kind yeah. of the best example. Yeah. And you've heard countless stories of people who have been on surf trips with him yeah. where they're just like, oh, we were surfing, you know, this part of the reef or this part of the point. That's where the waves are coming all day. Then Curran paddled out 100 yards past us where there was nothing. And then all of a sudden, a, the best wave of the day popped up and he got barreled all the way down the point. <laughs> right, you know? right, right. Um, there's a lot in this book that implies that being attuned leads to happiness and satisfaction. So my question then do you, it to you is, do you think Curran is happier than you and I are? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think being attuned is, I mean, it's, so I'm here, there's an ancient idea that's in Plato and Aristotle that you're doing, happiness is doing well. And so just in being more attuned, you're doing well as right. a surfer, right? So that is a kind of happiness. It's of what the ancients called eudaimonia. Um, but I don't now. So you can have, but you could have a surfer who really does well as a surfer, and they're they're doing well in that regard. They're happy as a surfer in that regard. But otherwise, maybe they have a, like a discontented emotional life, or you know, a lot of family friend problems, or something like that, or but maybe if you're, suicidal. So potentially, but other things being equal, uh, <laughs> yeah, other things being equal, doing well, surfing, being attuned. 
um, not just on the particular wave, but being attuned, you know, to your environment and the way surfers are, you know, often. I think that itself does significantly contribute to the quality of a person's life. Um, right. Yeah. So. Um, so current's happier than we are. Well, other things being equal, if he also had the other things, the other good things in life, and he he might that we might have, um, you know, good relationships. I don't know what is like. Really, you know, but the conceit you know, of the book is yeah. that they're not equal, though, right? That this thing is actually this act of surfing is overarching. Well, I guess yeah. There, I I mean, I definitely think a lot of things contribute to the quality of a person's life. Uh, um, but the idea is that adaptive attunement in surfing and also in other areas like is a really big component you know it contributes a lot to it right um and so someone could have a lot of that but then be lacking in other goods and still you know not be as happy but um but it's a lot easier to just be a happy person if you if you're a surfer and i can really dedicate to it and that's reflected in the fact that people think of surfers as like easygoing or light about being and and there's a sense in which yeah they're like what's their you know problems are a little lighter you know well as long as you've been surfing recently or you got vivid memories are vivid you know you know i just want to know for a fact if i commit this next phase of my life to surfing and attunement that i will reap the benefits of it and happiness yeah yeah i think so (laughs) i feel sure of it yeah have you read um sean thompson wrote a book a few years ago he called it the code it was kind of for kids or not for kids for like pre-teens or teenage i think i saw some parts of it okay he basically gave you like 12 a code 12 rules to live by um, that discusses some of these things. But he talks about Kelly's attunement and um, specifically being Sean being in the commentator's booth at J Bay 2005. Um, It was Kelly and Andy Irons in the final. Andy had Kelly's back against the wall. Kelly needed like a nine something. And the clock was winding down. It was literally a minute left on the clock and a set pops up on the horizon sean and everybody in the booth's like oh we don't know if this set's going to get here in time and you know especially there the size of the waves you can't see past that first line and kelly paddles over it and everybody's tripping they're just like why didn't he go why didn't he go second wave paddles over the second wave and now it's down to like 15 seconds on the clock and they're not sure if the third wave is going to be better or if there's even going to be time for it to get there he gets it with like 15 seconds left on the clock the third wave of the set surfs out of his skin and gets the 9.6 or whatever it was that he needed like after the buzzer ends up winning and um sean was blown away sean being a local there and like understanding it and having a lot he was blown away that he wouldn't have waited for the third wave of the set you know and uh but he said it was the best example he's ever seen of somebody being attuned with the ocean use the word attunement yeah i don't remember oh but yeah it was the idea Yeah. yeah But I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. He, idea. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, he's he's one of the more articulate surfers I can think of. Sean Thompson. Yeah. Is, yeah. Um, uh, pretty impressive. Um, um, I actually went to I went to this event at UCLA and it was surfers at UCLA talking. I guess it was about surfing, but Sean Thompson was there. And then I took a friend of mine who's a retired philosophy professor and law professor, and he's, his name's Marshall Cohen, um, and he's somebody who's you know he's you know been like an influential you know and really a known person for a long time and he's he's known he's known or good friends with a lot of the great philosophers of the 20th century um so he's really a kind of a consummate intellectual and uh you know um and and really into the arts and um and and so uh and i introduced him to sean Thompson at this event thing and uh and both at the event and then talking to him and marshall was like so impressed with him he was like <laughs> uh, you know uh 
um, yeah, so yeah, just just how with his articulateness and yeah, you know, yeah, um, well, he, and well, also what he said, yeah. Sean mentioned, um, I don't know if he wrote this in the book, but he mentioned it to me when he was telling me that story. Was he talked to Kelly after the fact? He was just like, "What were you thinking?" And Kelly said that he saw a pod of dolphins who showed him the way. <laughs> and I don't know how what Kelly was implying by that, yeah. but he. Sean was dead serious, and Sean yeah. was confused too. Though he wasn't sure how serious Kelly or um, what Kelly meant to imply by that, but he said quite literally, like there was a pod of dolphins, and I kind of got a sense or a feeling that they were trying to show me something or tell me something. And I don't know if he literally followed them or if he just used yeah. that as a sign. It somehow communicated, and that's yeah. kind of the point that I was going to make was like somehow nature communicated with him whether it was yeah. dolphins or just what is attunement you know it could just yeah. be reading the horizon line or something yeah, like that yeah i mean that. there is a real intuition that you can't that you can't explain it can be a real kind of perception i mean like a famous example of this in the psychology literature is the fire chief who uh you know is in the in a building and just has, suddenly has a sense that the building's going to blow and then tells everybody to get out and then the thing blows right uh yeah. And then they ask, "Well, how did you know?" And he's like, "Uh, don't I don't know." Right. But uh, no, it's not just he wasn't born with this, right? It's from an accumulative, accumulative sort of sense of what's going on. And some scientists have tried to look at like connections between water heaters and certain smells or whatever. And so you could gradually, you know, by being with enough experience and skillful engagement, you know, your attunement can get pretty heightened, such that circumstantial cues can just put you put you in a certain way of thinking that you know with expectations. And they can be pretty reliable, uh, even if you can't fully conceptualize and put words on it, whatever. And so it could have been that, like, Slater, he did saw something, right? He saw a bump or a splash or whatever that just, um, you know, maybe if you really articulated it, you know, couldn't couldn't quite be explained, you know, if it, it was just the one or two the two waves coming. Um, but it's not like he really thought thought through that right or reason that out it was yeah. just like a spontaneous sense he's learned how to trust like his really refined um sense of these things he goes with it and then and and then there it is um so yeah i mean it's uh, i mean and famously when people make these judgments sometimes they'll tell stories about like oh here's what i was thinking and then psychologists also study and show that like a lot of times people's explanation after the fact can't be right <laughs> so they they'll say oh they just confabulate they just make things up or whatever but i don't i don't that doesn't show show that they didn't really know that they or there wasn't even really a kind of reasoning going on it's just a very spontaneous attuned kind of thing that's not highly conceptualized something that you right. have words for that you can really think through and that's just what heightened attunement involves it's still a kind of knowledge it's still a kind of perception it's still something maybe in principle one could uh, unpack and reason about um so yeah, I don't. Um, so yeah, and I think I think all surfers have that to some degree. Just your mm -hmm. expectations about which way a wave is going to pop or when it'll double up, or you know. So yeah, you have it more than somebody who's never been. In yeah, the right. Ocean. So yeah. it's all different degrees yeah. of attunement, and then you know you can get to high, higher, higher, heightened states. Um, I mean, a big part of this, maybe this is part of um, um, for you know middle-aged surfers that want to like me who want to double down on surfing as, mm -hmm. their, as their midlife strategy or whatever. Um, Something that elite athletes do, like Slater, but in other sports as well, is that um, this is separating the like the top of the pros versus the the next layer down. Is that uh, the next level of pros is that they're constantly disrupting their own expectations about what's going to happen, hmm. 
and sort of creating new problems so that they can then look again and find a solution. And so that's that's how they get even more and more tuned to a, like a wide variety of circumstances. So um, you avoid stagnation, you know, in that way and get even high, more and more uh, perceptive in a completely spontaneous way. And yeah. so that's not something like in the moment that you can articulate, but you can pretty self-consciously, you know, um, uh, you know, keep, you know, upsetting your expectations about things, looking fresh at things. You can sort of do that, you know, by really paying concerted attention, um, you know, doing new things, trying new things. Um, you yeah. have to if you're at yeah. a level where there's no opponents to really challenge you. Yeah, right, right. So to. just continue to tra challenge yourself. I mean, that and, you know, you can do that with trying different surfboards or different types of waves. Yeah. And that's something one reason I think people like that, um, trying new kinds of surf spots, you know, uh, you know, uh, and then, you know, developing in lots of ways that maybe don't even fit the conventional scripts about surfing performance, you know. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, if you're like, if you're past your prime and you're not worried about, uh, you know, <laughs> like succeeding as a, by the conventional standards or whatever, um, then, you know, who cares? You know, you can, there's a lot of ways to become ever more attuned to the waves and, and to a new approach or a new styling or, um, so I think you can you can still do the things that you know someone like Slater's doing to get ever more ever more attuned. Yeah. I mentioned that he was surfing in that final against Andy Irons. Tell me the story about the time he burned you at Lowers. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. That was a, well. This happens a lot. I mean, I've surfed there really a lot, like over, over thirty years, but especially over the last twenty, like a lot, a lot. Like aside from traveling, like every swell, so I know pretty well. Um, um, and you know, like there's just like a the the trick to surfing there is just being on the money spot right? you know, like, like a lot like a lot of breaks but there it's like you There's know one but, peak. yeah and then he uh you know i think there was a wave he thought was his or whatever and then i was on the money spot and and so he just dropped in on me and then i i think i hooted him off or something like that you know like you know got it and then he he was sort of irritated by that so as i pedaled like what's this you know hooting yelling i'm like look i mean like i was in position i just said the basic things you know there, um there's not really a line i was in the position you know and then he was like really frustrated, like oh, so much for the aloha spirit or whatever. And I was like, this is lowers, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> so did he yeah. kick out when you hooted him? Yeah, he did kick out. But okay. um, there was another wave where he dropped on me again. But I think, you know, he kind of dropped in and surfed a little bit and then kind of kicked out. But it was a little. And then, uh, well, I think he said there, he's like, you're on every wave or whatever. <laughs> but I, I felt like, I felt like. You're Andy Irons. You're like a great surfer. Like you don't and a great competitive surfer, a great crowd surfer. It's like you don't need my help. You know, yeah. like what do you, you know, like yeah. I um I think once you've got a world title or two under your belt, you kind of just drop in with impunity and assume that whoever's behind you would just as soon watch you surf. Yeah. As right, they would right, like yeah. hoot you off a wave. He's he's probably not used to getting hooted off. No, it's true. A lot of the best surfers, I mean, just People are more deferential, like, oh, they're paddling for it. They must got it. They must have got it. They must be in the right position. Okay, so, you know, you just don't contest. And they, I think yeah. they just get used to that. And, uh, you know, that's probably what it was, yeah. I went to, like, a surfer pole award show, yeah. like, 10 or 15 years ago or something. And there was this long line at the bathroom. And I had waited in the thing forever. And I got right to the front. And then he walks up and tried to just push me out of the way to go right into the front of the line without waiting. Oh, man. And I blocked him. Yeah. I actually don't even know. I don't think I fully recognized who it was at first. Mm. I was just like, who's this guy? So I kind of blocked him. And then he made fun of me. I realized who he was. And he started making fun of the shirt I was wearing. And then everybody was laughing at me. And it hurt my feelings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was another like, thing. So when he was kind of yelling at me, and then I was like yelling back. But then the other people around were like, 
you know, where they were kind of like looking down and right. hanging. even like people I know and talk to all the time, yeah. they're kind of looking away because like, I don't want to get on the wrong side. And you know, exactly. You know, like, like, yeah. Like I know you bro, but like, uh, don't, you know, don't bring me into this kind of thing. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, what are your concerns for global warming as a surfer? Getting back to the serious stuff in the book. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think so. I mean, surfers, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, a hum- human concern for, you know, vast, numbers of people who, you know, be killed or displaced or, um, you know, even if you're, you know, you don't care that much about people. The surfer is definitely what well, we care about waves, you know, um, and we can, and not just any waves, we care about, you know, the waves that we know and love, right. Um, not just our home breaks, but places that we've, we've been or places we'd still like to go. And I think it doesn't take much by way of a certain kind of conservative, um, moral outlook, like to be concerned to conserve the valuable thing we've got. So we've got this valuable resources, you know, these reefs, these sand, these breaks, you know, like many, you know, acquired, you know, thousands and thousands of years of geology and ocean flows to create these things. And then to have them just submerged, you know, and become like high tide mushy crap, you know, because of sea level rising, if it's avoidable, you know, is just seems like sort of wrong. Right. Um, um, and now, like, there's a debate you can have, which I've had with some friends who, um, who who say, well, you know, there's an upside, which is that, like, a lot of spots that are now too low, like, too shallow for surfing, uh, that are only breaking on high tides, those spots will come back, right? <laughs> you know, uh, and there's a spot, actually, in on Nias, in, right at the bottom of Lagundry Bay, called the Machine, that um, when the reef, the earthquake brought the reef up by, like, three meters, um, that spot became too shallow for surfing. So that the machine is called the machine will come back. Maybe, you know, <laughs> right. so, uh, or, or yeah, I kind of agree at this part of the book. I kind of agreed with your friend and his argument, okay, which yeah. is not only, um, might those spots come back, but there could be brand new spots that you've never even seen before. Haven't even heard of, you know, right. Right. Like I yeah. don't feel pes. I mean, I feel pessimistic about climate yeah. change for other reasons, okay, right, but just right. yeah. selfishly as a surfer. Yeah. I feel like there's a uh, untold potential, you know, there's potential for magic. Yeah. Okay. That. Yeah. There, I mean, there is, I mean, even like, um, you know, in Namibia, you know, Skeleton Bay is a relatively recent formation on a sandbar. So maybe there's stuff that like that, that could happen that wouldn't have other ha- happened otherwise. Um, my friend, the friend is Graham Bird and from Durban, South Africa. Um, uh, so I've had this argument with him, but he with his like South African friends, they're with me. <laughs> like, no, no, this is just a disaster. And so my thought is, well, look, there's some, there might be some upside, but um, it's not just a cost-benefit analysis where you're looking at like an upside and then there's the, the loss, you know, of all these great ways, but then there's the upside and then we just balance the cost versus the benefits and we ask whether there's a, a, a net, you know, and then we just adapt from there. Um, the more conservative idea is that, well, no, the loss, the thing we're losing is, is it's almost like a sacred thing. It's not just a cost. It's, it's, it's really awful. It's sort of, t- it's really terrible for us to, to have this valuable thing, this, uh, and, and to just let it be degraded massively uh, when we can avoid it. Um, so, you know, I mean, to some extent, like that's, you know, to some extent, the processes are outside of our control, you know, whether the technologies will emerge at this point, it's not clear that the politics are ever going to do enough about global warming and changing our standards. I mean, I still think we should, but at the moment, the bet is on technology that green energy is going to, you know, breakthroughs are going to be enough to both give us new energy, clean energy sources, and also suck down the carbon that's already up there, creating the greenhouse gas effect. You have to get all that stuff back into the ground somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And so algae does that to some degree, but you have to have new kinds of sinks like algae, you know, that do it on a huge, huge scale. So you need all that technology and that stuff's under works. It works on a small scale, but whether it can be scaled up uh, quickly enough to deal with the scale of the problem is a really uncertain kind of thing. Um, at the moment, we're putting a, a bet on technology for that. You know, let's let's hope and pray it, that 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 works. Um, but I mean, my thought is, if you're if you're a conservative in the conservation sense, um, you think, well, we shouldn't just put a bet on technology. Just roll the dice, no. like uh, on that. You know, look, we sh we should do a lot more um, to um, to mitigate the impacts uh, um, and reduce the disruption and and the de degradation of the environment that result. And then you know, and then what kinds of things do we have to do? Uh, well. Uh, if there are a huge sacrifice, then maybe that's a problem. But what if it's just like shorten the work week so that we don't emit as much and <laughs> and do relatively less consumptive um, activities like go surfing <laughs> or, yeah. you know, doing more walking for people who aren't surf or more gardening or something like that. And then the idea is, well, look, maybe we're, we're not only not worse off in a in, in a in a world where we're adapting. If we're as as well off as we are now. Or even better off, then there's no sacrifice at all, and and in that sense, climate adaptation can be efficient in the economist sense. Of there's some people who are better off, future people who are now not, you know, displaced, but then the current generation, we can be no worse off than we were before for for various kinds of adaptations. And if if that's the case, then it's not like there's this big sacrifice that you have to justify. Um, from a moral point of view, it's like we have sort of no excuse. Like right. twist my arm, like work less and go surfing more often. That's and that's my contribution to the the legitimacy of capitalism. And you know, yeah, uh, you know. So then, what what what? How can we reasonably complain of 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 being asked to do that? I mean, some people will, will complain, but is it reasonable? You know, is a further question. Right, right, right. Um, and that's assuming that your surf experience contributes less carbon emission than your work experience obviously. yeah right so the the act of surfing itself is carbon free you know but um there's you know the process of getting to the beach or like certain amount of travel or whatever yeah. you'd have to you have that you'd have to worry about that i mean you're not contributing anything on the climate change front if you work less and then emit as much or more or if you, you know or if your work course. doesn't yeah. emit carbon yeah right yeah. that's right too yeah so i mean at the level of the individual um you know like anything that we do personally makes only a tiny difference on this front. But so the, the, the way to think about the big question is what we do in terms of overall societal norms and averages. Yeah. Right. So we already got the 40 hour work week at, you know, the 1930s. And that was a that was the beginning of the leisure revolution within capitalism, as I put it. But now what I'm saying is, well, what we should just do is just continue the leisure revolution by keep pushing back the work week uh, less and less, and then find new ways of, of, of of using our leisure time with less consumptive activities um, and that that is a good way perfectly good way of adapting on a changing planet that can leave us no worse off and better off and then future people definitely better off um, so that's that's an efficient adaptation and so I think then morally morally necessary yeah how has your book been received by the philosophy community yeah yeah pretty good um, I mean, it's kind it's of kind a of new a, discussion, it, right? Yeah, it's an unusual experiment um, in public philosophy from their point of view. So I think they're interested in, and so the assholes book was as well. Um, sure. And um, and that, there with both books, I'm kind of responding to. Um, I you know initially, I felt like uh, philosophers weren't doing a really good job of explaining ideas in a way that was really available to the like a, the wide audience. 
you know, sort of too concerned with their own sort of specialized arguments. And um, um, and so in a way that the real importance of philosophy, you know, this thing that's a really important part of human culture um, that, you know, people connected with universities are sort of entrusted with. Um, you know, we have, we have ways of making it a professional enterprise, almost scientific in the way we go about it. Um, and that's all really important. But I think that we've sort of over overdone that side of things and lost sight of what it is to really communicate with uh, the broader public, the ideas that are really belong to everybody, right? That sort of we're entrusted in them, but not delivering on the, on the, on the, on the side. So, and like, who knows exactly how to do that. But when I wrote the assholes book, I thought, well, this is a way of trying to do that, like a, a different experiment. I thought the experiments were that, that were out there in pop philosophy weren't as successful because they were still too tied to sort of like a, um, a philosophy lecture with a pop culture hook or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, so for people that wanted a back to school experience, they might, they might read something like that, but there's a limited sort of broad public audience for people that, that want that. So I thought that philosophy should go a lot farther, um, to really start from the sort of ordinary concerns that, that people have, um, you know, without presupposing an interest in philosophy, you know, so with the assholes book, it was, you know, we all have, we're all stuck with an asshole in our lives. Um, and we all feel frustrated at one point or another with having to deal with them. And then uh, the idea of philosophy uh, by, can help us define what the asshole is and understand the problem and maybe see our way through it. Then that's that's sort of speaking to something that an existential kind of problem that we all have. And then you see the value of philosophy and you can get into it from that way. And then if you do that, it turned out that not only resonated with people, but it also there's like interesting philosophical issues because there's sort of novel claims you can make or old things that are out there that have to be tweaked a little bit to really apply. And then they, they're fresh, you know? Um, so that worked. And then sort of the surfing book was a similar kind of thing. Um, not as easy to, to make the connection, but, um, not as broad of an audience It's not as broad of an audience, but, um, but still the idea of like, okay, explaining this more familiar activity and trying to capture the meaning of it, making it that about the meaning of life, you know, uh, and in written in a way that, um, isn't just for surfers, but but for anybody who maybe just has a passing acquaintance with it, or uh, or who maybe read Barbarian Days and like like the idea, yeah. but didn't maybe totally get the, like what was so well, important about the surfing act itself, or you know something like that. I remember Finnegan talking about almost secretly being a surfer, living in New York in the literary world, just being embarrassed about his surfing activity, and that book kind of being like a coming out of the closet, so to speak. Um, and then it was very well received though. It wasn't, yeah. nobody really, you know, gave him a hard time about it, obviously. Yeah. So I, that's kind of what I was worrying about is like, are philosophers taking the book seriously? Oh, I think they, I mean, I think they, they see it for what it is, which is a, an exercise in pop philosophy. And then they're, they're interested in, um, seeing whether I can pull it off or, you know, how you mix the different kinds of issues, you know, um, are they going to take up surfing? I, I don't know if they're in any role, <laughs> but, uh, there's some, there's some ways that, um, it might sort of invite certain, uh, certain kinds of approaches. I mean, I have, I have, will make like write professional articles that develop like topics from downstream, um, from the book. So there's serious issues that you can extract from it that you would then develop in the more professional way for like a journal article or, sure. or an academic book. So that's it's pregnant with that stuff, you know. Yeah. And some people might take it up in that way, or or just generate ideas in that way. I mean, that's it's done that for me, um, anyway. So, um, uh, but for the most part, yeah, no, I think um, I think people like it. I mean, the, and you know, there are also just novel arguments there, like 
the argument about climate change uh, is and the reduction of the work week is a novel argument. Uh, so that's sort of just news from political philosophy point of view. Yeah. Um, even if it's not argued in the way that you normally would up to meet up to academic standards. Um, um, so I think I think they mostly just see it see it for what it is as public philosophy and 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 um, are interested in like how one should do that, how we should do that and whether you know this is a good model or not yeah. you know yeah um, what is your current work life slash surf life like how do you manage it are you working less surfing more yeah yeah I do I do have made a concert effort um, to do it I mean in academia you know we'll tend to write too much um too many articles agree to write you know too many articles or or publish too many books so um i've scaled back to a larger to like my ambitions on how much how productive i'm going to be um and then focus on sort of bigger more interesting projects in that way um so i am pushing back and also encouraged colleagues you know to do that as well um i did that when i was chair of the philosophy department you know kind of um uh, more of a quantity instead of quality instead of quantity kind of um, idea of production. So that's the kind of mini version of it, you know. Um, how many hours do you think you're you're actually working and how many days a week do you surf? Oh, I don't know. Oh, surfing. Yeah, well, it depends on the swell. If the waves are good, then every day, you know, of the swell. Um, um, but, you know, normally like a few times a week and then every day if it's, it's more. But, um, but how much do I work is a really hard question because, you know, it's um, – um, with 40 being the over under for yeah, are you, are you or, less than or more? I than? don't know. Cause I mean, I mean, I'm the way my life is sort of, it's sort of pretty integrated my life and, and, and work doing philosophy. So it's sort of, it's sort of like passing thoughts could be an aha moment or, um, so that's when a lot of the real action happens, you know, uh, kind of that's out and an, about, you that's know. another issue I had yeah. trying to make that book, the book fit my personal yeah. life is, um, I don't know when I've worked a 40-hour work week. I don't know that I ever right, have. Right, right. And I and I think that the trend is kind of moving away from it. Certainly with, you know, tech companies like Google and stuff like yeah. that, like you don't have to put in 40 hours in front of a computer in, in the office. Right. And we incentivize you to sleep 8 hours right. a day and all that sort of stuff. Um I think that I am yeah, so much of my work is happening while I'm driving to this meeting, for example. Right, I'm right. generating ideas and yeah. solutions and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so I think it's hard to I define. mean, for people that are sort of have already sort of carved out a more kind of flexible or creative um, kind of life, then it's harder to. The, but hard, but the workplace really has a sort of structure that's enforced on people on condition of keeping their job. Sure, of course. And to some extent, the work, the, the new flexibility that you get. Um, just eats up more of people's leisure time. So, like now, yeah, like, it does. So a lot of times, yeah, okay, you don't have to be here, but now, but we're going to hit you with emails and and ask you to do things like all the time, all hours. Um, so, like in some sense, l leisure isn't protected in the way that it, it it was once, at least on average, or there's larger trends. I mean, Germany, for example, the, um, the lazy Germans, as I like to call them, they have a 36-hour work week, they have six weeks vacations, and they they rigidly segregate work. Um, and leisure so there's leisure time is protected that's your time and it's it's really a no-no to like email and ask for ask for things off that time I mean, the whole idea of german efficiency right is that no it's like we, we're reducing the work week because you can produce just as much within the smaller amount of time right. um and then you know do it in a focused way instead of like being at you know long hours at work and wasting a lot of it like cruising the internet you know just vegging you know uh you know uh so 
that's like a pretty surfer attitude about it. I think you know. Uh, yeah. Um, Adding that level of structure to it isn't. Yeah. Right. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's a way of the structure in that. And this, what we need now is more structure to give people permission to take yeah. the time off, yeah, um, yeah. or even like like Americans officially get two weeks vacation in a lot of workplaces, or that's kind of a, a norm. But people don't take it. They take a week. Yeah. They only take a week because there's the pressures of not looking like your contributor or not looking. You know, um, and that's the the culture of like, well, look, we've got a lot of work to do, um, and like, what you just want to go to, you know, Spain? I mean, come on, you know, like, <laughs> you want to go vacation? Oh, sure, right. that's fine on right. your time, you know. So, um, there's so I think that's a problem with the larger. Uh, that's a problem with the larger culture, and so it really is an important thing to have the institutions um, structured so that you can push back against those those pressures yeah um and that's for a lot of people you know who haven't sort of devoted their life to carving out a you know a surfer's path through right. all the conventional expectations you know they they need that to be protected against the social pressures that are eating up you know their leisure lives sure i wanted to get you to weigh in as a philosopher on a couple of surfing kind of existent existential quandaries that we have going on right now yeah. if you wouldn't mind yeah outside of the book yeah what are your thoughts on wave pools? Yeah, right. Uh, okay, I'm sure uh, you've yeah. thought about this. I have been. <laughs> have you surfed any? No, I haven't. I haven't. Um, I mean, I wouldn't mind, but I'm 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 skeptical about their. I mean, well, one is the technology. You know, is obviously really interesting and a and a cool break for. Um, um, is it, it's you know for professionalism? I don't know. It's a mixed thing. It obviously it offers a lot of benefits to the WSL to um, be able to have a controlled. Uh, sort of playing fields um, and have comp competitions with quality waves and everything in a two-day window. Yeah, within on schedule, right? Yeah. The the waves are there when they want want to turn it on, and that helps with the Olympic bids and things like yeah. that. And um, uh, but you know, and I've, I mean, maybe I'd feel differently if I actually surf the the Slater wave, or whatever, you know. Uh, but but at the moment, I I mean, I'm pretty skeptical uh, about about it i mean not i mean it's incredible long tube ride or whatever but there really is something a lot lost i think um in in the environment i mean for one thing to set aside the competitive context um the the thing the sense of the sublime which the surfers are really deeply acquainted with i mean this is you, you know you have the sense that this wave is coming from out from the ocean and from maybe you know it's coming from the south pacific or from you know, a storm deep below, and you, you have this sense of connection just in waiting for the wave or seeing this wave with, with larger things um, and larger natural processes. And um, and that's a really big part of the, the beauty and in surfing, which is skillfully adapting to this thing that's beyond your control, that's, yeah. that's naturally produced. Um, and, you know, the unpredictability of the waves, right, is all about is exactly why attunement is really important and why there's why you get to have the stoke in having everything come together right because uh, it's not just that your skill perform skill for performance came together it's that the elements coalesced as well right and that it could have easily not happened and uh wow so this the sense of stoke that it did right it just did whoa uh, this is you know life is the great it's worth being alive rather than not just just to be here for this you know kind of thing um so you get less of that just already in surfing the wave pool because um, you know because it's a manufactured environment. There's still physical forces obviously creating the wave shape, but uh, and there's some unpredictability a little bit 
there's a lot less unpredictability in the wave environment. So it's it's the kind of issue is whether you can you know learn the sort of as it were gymnastics set you know well enough so that you can bring your skill for performance up to the what it's offering the possibilities that it's offering and so that already takes out a really big part like it reduces significantly a really big part of what's sort of deep and beautiful about surfing now you might think okay that's fine if you're a purist but for the point of view of competitive surfing you know this is you know just a supplement and it's just supplementing competitive surfing and you know there's all kinds of commercial advantages you know uh, associated with it so I was open to that idea, like, okay, but, you know, I can see why if you need a world tour, you know, and you're trying to, you know, make it, you know, as popular as other sports or whatever, assuming that's a good thing. Um, but I felt watching the contest, actually, so I was kind of watching it open, and I, I really felt that even the competition wasn't as good, it wasn't as interesting. It was more like gymnastics, is how I felt. I mean, um, it was more like gymnastics because it was sort of like, can can this surfer, you know, do their personal best or beat their, you know, beat yeah. their previous thing? Can they get such and such score um, where, like, for the most part, the wave, I mean, it's obviously a really demanding wave, right? That was a kind of surprising thing to see, like, uh, you know, uh, these great surfers just, like, getting caught behind or whatever, you know, like, a, yeah. uh, mistiming, like, sections we might think. So it's obviously a really demanding wave and requires a lot of skill. And there's some unpredictable elements. Um, but it still was much more like gymnastics um, in the, you know, where the challenge is just whether the competitors can sort of rise to the skill level that's needed in the moment, not whether the ocean is going to cooperate or whatever. And I think I wasn't, I think it clarified for me that the thing I love about watching the other surf contests, especially when the waves are good, like the pipe contest or the, or the Tavarua contest or, or the Chopu contest. You know, it's it's that interaction with the the, spon the spontaneous elements of this this it's the sea. It's just doing its own thing, and then, you know, when things really come together, you know, uh, I mean, it's an incredibly exciting thing to, to happen, and that that's just sort of lost, um, even on you know the great, you know, maneuver or whatever. Like you know, John John struggled through the whole thing, but he had this great great air at the end of the wave. It was like you know an incredible you know feat of skill, right? Um, and that was sort of exciting, but um, it had a certain amount of spontaneity. But I got the sense that like John John's greatness as a surfer is really because he's so attuned to the spontaneous changing that, and he was kind of thrown off by being on a fixed stage. You know, like it's kind of like the the thing that makes the surfing great isn't really like, keyed into that, right? Um, um, so yeah, so in the end, I felt I felt a little disappointed with it, even as as even as a, a venue for competitive surfing. Even that, as for competitive surfing, wasn't quite what what's great about competitive surfing otherwise. So, I mean, maybe you could think of it as like an, a way of introducing surfing to the rest of the world, you know, to kind of get their feet wet on the idea of it, some of the concepts. But I don't think it really captures, you know, um, and puts on display like what's what's even great about competitive surfing, you know, which after all, just it isn't just about you know, who can turn in the most skillful performance, you know, it's really, a, it, it brings in a lot more of the spontaneity and intangibles and the sense of the sublime and the beautiful that are the things that are really valuable about surfing, even in the non-competitive context. Yeah, I, I agree. I actually surfed Kelly's pool oh, okay, back great. in November. Yeah. Um, what do you think? It's amazing. I mean, it's amazing yeah. to surf. Okay. Yeah. That's it. Though. Like it, yeah. it's remarkable. I only got four waves and I pretty much blew them. Like there's too much pressure and yeah, going right. into it. Yeah. Uh, you need a bit more time to um, kind of suss it all out. Yeah. But um, 
all that said, I agree with what you're saying. I I would love to surf it again. I would yeah. absolutely go back, but the novelty of even surfing it, I think, will wear off. Right. And the novelty of viewing it certainly already has. Yeah. Right. And I felt the same way with you about the competition thing. I thought that might be a real um, reason to have it, you know. But the competition was a letdown, and I came to the same conclusion as you, which was while they were trying to kind of commodify the barrel and like, let's make this something that we can always have because this is what we seek in nature. I think that zaps all of the value out of the barrel. The only value it had was its scarcity and its unpredictability and not knowing where and when you were going to find it and traveling all that way to get a three second version of it, you know? Yeah, right. That's the value. Yeah, right. So I'm afraid that um, like that particular model that they're using and technology has real limitations because of the predictability the new pool in waco i think adds mm. a lot more excitement okay because yeah. it's spon- spontaneous, it's spontaneous yeah. yeah um and but that might grow old too with two years sure. of kind of retrospect and hindsight we might feel the same way about that that we do about ks waveco um but then somebody mentioned something to me about you know when they introduce supercross people having this dilemma also oh, okay. when you take any given Sunday, the film you mentioned previously, it's all about being out in nature, enduro racing, stuff like that. And finding, if you find a jump, you can hit it, you know, and got to compromise with it. Well, then people go and build jumps. And now it's strictly about the maneuver you can do on that jump. You could see something like that happening with wave pools. Um, And now Supercross in no way challenges enduro racing at all. They're just entirely different different sports, sports, you know, and neither party is offended by the other. Um, But I think for that to happen in surfing, you would need to be able to create a wave that's more spectacular than what's in nature. Because in right. Supercross, they have. Okay, they, right. they have man-made jumps yeah. that allow you to do double backflips. Right. Where in nature, right. that's hard to find. You yeah, know? right, right. So until we could do that in wave pools, I don't know that they'll be able yeah. to make that transition. I thought it was interesting that, I'm sure you saw that Seth Moniz clip in the wave pool in Waco where he does a backflip. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, that is pretty much the gnarliest backflip we've ever seen in surfing. Right. You know, I mean, we might have seen crazier aerials and right. other type of air rotations. But the fact that the craziest backflip or the biggest backflip ever was in a wave pool, I think, is important. Right. You know? Yeah, right, right. I mean, that, yeah, it's, that's a great comparison, which I hadn't thought about. Um, but it, it, I guess it fits also with the gymna- gymnastics analogy. It was like, yeah. so motocross already gone the gymnastics route, like fixed, very well-defined stage. And then it just becomes about um, the exquisite per- performance. Right, we're going through a set routine, you know, which in, but now look at gymnastics, what it's like. I mean, um, I mean, it's, it's very rigorous. And if you don't, really know what you're looking at it like all looks really similar you know yeah. like you know yeah, it uh, does. Um, which as does surfing yeah well i guess to the yeah to the untrained so, like, eye, my right, dad does, who doesn't right. surf yeah has mentioned it to me okay like yeah. i don't know if he could tell the difference between a top turn that you know yeah right coco ho does versus one that kelly slater does right, or right. something you know right so there are it's already especially on the on the wave pool it's all it looks kind of similar i mean um um so yeah i mean maybe it becomes like a different it could just become a different sport that's just more like gymnastics and like not that there's anything wrong with it but no. um but you feel like if somebody just said well i'm only going to do that sport i'm not really going to surf ocean waves you know um 
you might feel like, well, <laughs> you know, it's better than working or whatever, or, or working a crappy job. But you know, like you're really missing out on something. You know, I don't um, think that they would get the experience that your book talks about. Yeah, right. you know that you yeah. actually have to work for. Yeah, and right, endure right. and like suffer some consequence and put things. You know. Yeah. No. Physically that's... be able to best yeah right it's all it's all too easy um yeah a sense of respect for the for the ocean and you know for its grandeur and sublimity and yeah i mean and that's that the stuff that really like makes you feel like i just want to spend my whole life doing it like this is the end of the room this is the end of rainbow this is the fountain of youth you know like uh you just keep doing this and you organize life around it um i don't know i mean i haven't served the wave pool you but you get the sense that it's more like a, gy- a gymnast, you know, who um, gets really interested in this particular technically difficult activity. Maybe they're really good at it and they do it for a while. But, um, um, you know, I don't know, if, you know, but it's not something they do hardcore for, for too long or whatever. Yeah. Well, Surfing in the Ocean, your book certainly highlights like all the economic benefit of um, surfing more than working. But it really doesn't even unpack all the emotional benefit of it, you know, and certainly the physical benefit of it. I think it does for a portion. You might reference it um, that you don't need to go to the gym really yeah, if you're right, an active right. surfer. But I mean, so much of what I get out of it is the emotional benefit of right, just, right. you know, you feel better afterwards, yeah, yeah, yeah. period. Yeah, that's true. That's fair, actually. And that comes because sort of the, the default way that people will talk about it in terms of emotions or feelings like, oh, surfing makes me feel so good or um, it's really enjoyable, but that sort of makes it just seem not, it's just sort of one way to get pleasure or one way to get enjoyment and it's not special. So I was, so my focus was really, well, what is the enjoyment about? The enjoyment is about something um, and it's, it's enjoyable because of what it's like. So what is it really like? Um, What's special? And is there something special about it? then I say, yeah, there is. Um, but that doesn't mean also that the like the, the psychic benefits of it aren't really considerable, right? And then of course they go along with you know the better it is as a as an activity, um, um, the more enjoyable it can be for those reasons, sort of justifiably. Um, yeah. And it's it's different from just like a a drug that you take that gives you gives you a high or whatever. Right. Um, I mean, it's not like. It's not like oh heroin, but it doesn't like totally screw up your life. It only screws up your life a little bit, you know. <laughs> you know, like it could be internally induced, but you know, uh, well, if if only we could get you could get that same high, just put it in a pill, then you wouldn't need to surf anymore because you'd get the same enjoyment. Yeah, you know. Um, um, but but in fact, um, in fact, no, the sense of a sense of peace and a sense. I mean, the really deep and beautiful thing I think about, like a great day of surfing. Um, uh, even a great wave is that you're sort of uh, well, what might be called sort of being reconciled to the human condition. That is that you're here and there's life, and sure, life's really screwed up in lots of ways. But uh, but here I'm now, and I'm really glad, right? Um, um, and that sense of appreciation. I mean, a lot of people rarely feel that, right? Um, a lot of anxieties, you know, underlying anxieties come because. They can't really just accept themselves as they are. Um, they're striving perfectionism. There's people with like deep insecurities, and they're, you know, um, they're always fighting to be recognized and can't ever. I mean, I mean, there's you know a whole slew of sort of psychological disorders that, in a broad sense, ways that people can't find peace or maybe go to drugs or whatever because that's sort of as an escape because they can't sort of just accept you know themselves and and the world they're in and feel at home in it. Right. Um, and um, 
that's a really that kind of piece is a really deep and important thing in life and surfers just you know fall into it you know, like pretty easily right um and so that's a really blessed sort of way to be you it know is, yeah. yeah um couple of wrap-up questions in the interest of time what surfer currently would you kind of stop everything to watch a clip of uh well i've been following griffin colapinto you know our local um <laughs> local talent um He's on fire. I've been, you know, sort of just proud to, you know, because he's from Lowers, proud to sort of yeah. <laughs> be in the mix and watch, him, watch his star take off. Um, so um, um, so definitely him. Do you follow his younger brother on Instagram, Corey? I've checked out a little not, bit, yeah. I think, yeah, it is Corey, actually. The longboarder is who I'm thinking of. Oh, longboarder. Because uh, there's three of them. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. No, I, I haven't followed the others as much, actually. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Yeah. His okay, younger yeah. brother surfs Sano a lot. Yeah, okay. Um, and he shortboards, too, but he's yeah. unbelievable right, on, a, right, right. on a longboard. I think his Instagram handle is kookapinto. Oh, okay. <laughs> but he's spectacular. Yeah. Like, cross steps and, like, all these weird fades, and it's really beautiful to watch. Yeah, oh, right, right. Cool. Um. Are there any surf writers who you look forward to reading? Um, um, well, definitely Bill Finnegan. You know, I, I'm following him. You know, he he actually convinced me that I might. Well, I was thinking of writing. I go to Nias every year and um, I have lots of stories, and I also do some charity projects there. So lots of stories from that. I, th- I thought of a way of writing a book that is a philosophical book. Um, um, but it, he convinced me that um, I could write a memoir, uh, a good way of developing, going for what I wanted to be, write a memoir, which is just like tell the stories and then weave. I can weave in philosophical stuff. Um, so he was helping me with how to do that a little bit. So I and he's also says he's going to might do some similar stuff. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm following his lead on that. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's 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 one person. What does your current quiver look like? Whose boards are you writing? Oh yeah, I've been writing. I've been writing the sci-fi. The Are Tom you really? later sci-fi, yeah, and I, I really love them, yeah. Um, they're really great, um, and I'm really grateful for Slater. I mean, I'm almost willing to forgive him for the anorexic board years, you know, when he got, got us all riding <laughs> these anorexic surfboards and set us all back, you know. But now now that he's made, like, widely available the Tomo, you know, design, you know, and they just, I just, for me anyway, they work really beautifully, and uh, and I love that they're mass-produced. Like, uh, I took it a little while ago, I went to Tahiti and broke one there, Um and so I just left it. Um, and then, you know, on the way back from the airport at LAX, I just drove to the surf, surf shop and got another one. You know, so it's like, no wait, no hassle. Uh, so it, it's like, it's super, um, it's super to have such a great board, uh, yeah. just mass, mass produced, widely available. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Any upcoming projects or, an, I suppose, the next book idea you just revealed? Oh yeah, that's a that's a longer term thing. Okay. A couple. I'm also writing a book about money, uh, the nature of money, with a law and finance um, ace named Bob Hockett, a Cornell law professor. Um, it's about why money is basically a kind of promise, a kind of IOU, and why we can make it from nothing. Make promises. And the way you can make promises from nothing, you can create money from nothing, and then we can do things like pay for a basic income, um, which I would mention. You know, was defending for other reasons. That's how you can pay for it is by using monetary policy. And so it's the philosophy and law aspects of that of in a way that bears on the economics. Because believe it or not, economists, orthodox economists, don't really pay attention to money. They don't think it has any sort of fundamental role. Hmm. Um, it's the veil for the real economy. So um, we're writing a book explaining that. It's sort of, it's an original 
sort of intellectual argument, but it's be written for a broad audience so a pop reader could read it, you know. And then there's another book where uh, I'm working on um, with a classicist about loudmouth loudmouth women um, and redefining the term loudmouth so that it's a good thing or virtue for women to speak out contrary to social norms when they have an important contribution to a conversation. Um, and so that'll bring in ancient examples of, uh, um, and then, you know, um, there's a bigger argument about the the value of an inclusive Republican, Democratic Republic, you know, where everybody uh, speaks up and stuff like that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You've certainly been around the world a lot in ter- for surfing. You mentioned Nias um, in the book. You mentioned Jay Bay, Nicaragua, among others, I'm sure. Do you have, what's your next trip? you have anything exciting? The next on the trip, uh, probably back to South Africa and then probably, and then Indo, uh, my, my usual trip to Indo. Um, do you do that during the summer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually during high, dry season, yeah. you know, which coincides with the academic um, calendar uh, summer. Uh, so that's yeah, really convenient. Good. Yeah. Final question for everybody interviewed, which I might already know the answer to, is just what was the last surfboard that you rode? Oh, uh, yeah, the sci-fi was yeah, the last one. Yeah. Which size do you ride? The 510, yeah. Okay. Yeah, shorter than I would have ever in the past, but with well, more volume. Yeah. That's what's funny. You were talking about Slater, um, his trend in the 90s towards those potato chip boards, yeah. which is what I kind of grew up riding. Right, right. Definitely didn't do me any favors. Um, he's using a lot less foam nowadays, too. I mean, he's kind of, he trended towards more foam, and then it's back to less. There's more right. volume packed in, right. but it's certainly shorter and shorter boards over right, the years. Right. I feel like just in the last three or four, he's added volume back. Yeah. But, um, man, when he first got off Channel Islands, those initial tests that he was riding were tiny. Yeah, right, right, they were like right. They like 5.8 right. and not a lot of volume yeah. at all. Yeah, no, I admire the experimentation, his you know, willingness to experiment and stuff. So now we've benefited with that, you know. Um, yeah. Um, I think so. I mean, it's good if he keeps experimenting as well, but, you know. Um, um, Do you think he's officially or unofficially retired? I'm guessing probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, it's just hard to, you know, hard to get excited, I think, by just yeah. the same old Warhammer <laughs> anymore. Yeah, totally. Right on. Well, thank cool. you very much. Yeah. What did you hear, my blue-eyed son? And what did you hear, my darling young one? I heard the sound of a thunder that roared out a warning. I heard the roar of a wave that could drown the whole world. I heard 100 drummers whose hands were blazing. I heard 10,000 whispering and nobody listening I heard one person starve, I heard many people laughing I heard the song of a poet who died in the gutter I heard the sound of a clown who cried in the alley And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard It's a hard, it's a hard rains are gonna fall. Thank you, Dr. James, for taking the time. Really enjoyed our conversation and also really enjoyed the book. Provided some 
new insights for me and it was a good exercise um, and a re-examination of philosophy that I haven't really taken since shoot since college so a while back anyways everything that Aaron and I discussed is available links to his books all that sort of stuff is available on surfsplendorpodcast.com I've also got a video clip of him getting drained on a over well overhead right hander at Nias. So uh, the guy can surf, and he actually went and surf lowers right after our meeting. So hopefully that made it worth his while to drive south. As I stated at the beginning of the show, um, if you support this show in the month of June, you'll be entered to win that Morningwood Surfboards Alaya. You have my preemptive thank you and the internal warmth of just knowing that you did something good. All right, so thanks for that. Follow everything on social media at Surf Splendor. Check out this week's episode of The Grit with Matt Warshaw and Chaz Smith recounting our experience in Florida at the Florida Surf Film Festival and Chaz's new documentary film, Trouble, the Lisa Anderson story. It's actually not quite finished. We um, screened an unfinished version there in Florida, but it'll be available soon, and of course we'll tell you all about that. I believe that's all I have today in the way of business. So I will leave it there and remind you to get back into the ocean, to share a couple of waves, and as always, shred on. I walk to the depths of the deepest dark forest Where the people are many and their hands are all empty Where the pellets of poison are flooding their waters Where the home in the valley meets the damp, dirty prison And the executioner's face is always well hidden Where hunger is ugly, where the souls are forgotten Where black is the color, where none is the number And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing It's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard And it's a hard, it's a hard rain are gonna fall